Would you grab your Bibles and turn to Habakkuk chapter 2 before you are seated? Let's read this text together. Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2, verse 4. So behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 20. Or 14, sorry, 14 first. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth therefore keep silence before him. So if you're new with us or you haven't been here a while, we are walking through the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. Um, He is a prophet who is having a dialogue with God. It's a unique book in regard to this. Most of the prophetic books, God gave a word to the prophet. He was to tell the word to the people. Now Habakkuk's going to write this, write this word down, and it's going to go out, and they're going to tell people. But it's a little bit different book in that there's a dialogue going back and forth from Habakkuk to God, and God speaking to Habakkuk. And so it's a little bit different in regard to a lot of the Old Testament prophetic books. Habakkuk has some complaints with God. He's got some issues with God in regard to what God is saying and what God is doing. And he's got some some big questions, and the questions are connected to whether or not God is good. Now, the good thing about what Habakkuk does is he takes his questions directly to God to work through them. If this had not been his response, then he would have just remained in his disillusionment with God. He would have not been able to get any kind of answers in regard to things, but because he goes directly to the Lord, he's going to be able to process these as God speaks to him. to him, and as he waits for God's answers, he is able to rightly process because God is a, praise his name, a speaking God who gives answers. He gives direction so that we can understand what his word says. Now, I want to talk about this for a moment by way of introduction, because if we ever get to a place where we deeply struggle with where Habakkuk is, there are some dangers or potential dangers that can deeply affect our faith. So Habakkuk is wrestling with, why is God going to use? He knows Judah, kingdom's been divided. He knows Israel is really off course. He knows that Judah has had some good days and some bad days. And he, he recognizes that there's sin in the land of Judah. But God has got a plan, and the plan is He's going to allow a king who's come to power, who is marching through that section of the world, capturing every nation and every, and, and every people group. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. He's the leader of the Babylonian people or the Chaldean people. And God is going to use them to bring judgment on Judah because of the rebellion against them. And so he's wondering, God, how is this a good plan? Yeah, I recognize that I live in a land of sinful people, but how are you going to use, or why are you, God, going to use a people even who don't recognize you, don't acknowledge you? We at least have some people in the land, a remnant of people that love you. And so how are you going to do this? And God has already spoken through Jeremiah that this is going to happen. God, through Jeremiah, specifically says the name Nebuchadnezzar, 
and this people. And so they've been told exactly as well that who it's coming from and how long it's going to be. They're going to be scooped up and carried away for 70 years. The judgment's going to come. And Habakkuk is wrestling with this. God, how can you do this? And so if you have ever been at a place where you are questioning God's goodness, questioning the decisions and what God is allowing in our lives, if we don't step into those moments with humility and caution, then we can make some devastating mistakes. Let me give you three of them that I think are important. The first one is simply this, is that many people who question God's goodness and question the issue of evil and suffering, they literally step away at times from the Lord and they withdraw into themselves to a place of deep sadness and to a place of deep depression. It sometimes includes pouting uh, the idea, which none of us have ever done this before, where we feel sorry for ourselves and everybody else should feel that. But when you get to a place where you're feeling sorry for yourself because you think God has exercised evil toward you and your life, this is a darker place than normal. And this is kind of where Habakkuk has gotten to a bit. He just is wrestling with and he doesn't know what to do with his emotions at this time. Sometimes people with this think that Jesus somehow is no longer interested in their life. They're not valuable enough for him to offer help, to give some help to them, and they end up not living. That's what happens when you retreat within yourself and you have an idea that God is not interested in what is happening and taking place. This retreat within ourselves gets to a place where we are no longer able to live. We're just looking at the emotions and the struggle that we are feeling because there's so much attention inward. So that's one mistake that people make, is just a withdrawal within themselves. Another one that's becoming more and more popular in our day, and it's this one, is that there are people who literally walk away from God in anger, And they do so in such a way where they have convinced themselves that God definitely is not good. Or people, and this is happening again, more and more frequently of just saying this, God doesn't exist and I don't believe in him. And they literally turn their back on everything that they had professed, everything that had been a part of their lives. And so that's one another response. Today's term is called deconstructing. It's deconstructing, tearing apart a faith that you once had. And so that's kind of become the popular word. These are people who once confessed deep love for Christ, but now deny the Lord. Here's a third group that I think is important. And this may have some relevance in the room today. There are people who stay around the church They feel this way to God, but they disengage their heart from ever pursuing Him anymore. And they may come Sunday after Sunday. They might even show up to a life group, and they but they've just disengaged their heart and separated their heart from the Lord, and they don't really deal with anything anymore. They don't deal with the questions. They don't deal with the doubt. They don't allow anybody else to come in and to speak to that. They just carry it all to themselves. And because their heart is disconnected, they could be in a room like this one that's full of loving people. Full of loving people. And they can be the most lonely person in the room. 
Because their heart is disengaged in thinking that God is not good, that somehow He's allowed things to so spiral out of control that He either doesn't have the power or He literally doesn't care about what's happening and taking place in their lives. These are the kind of people, again, who are lonely even in a loving community, and they change churches often because the problem is not themselves. The problem is the church. And then they go to another church, and they found out. They find out, and hopefully over time they will discover, no, there's something inside of me that needs to be dealt with. And I've got to get my heart right with the Lord. So in Habakkuk 1... He's really wrestling with these questions. And so he knows he's there. And so what he does is, if you remember, he steps back and he begins to remind himself of things that he knows to be true of God. So he knows his questions aren't right, but he's got the questions and he doesn't know what to do. So he goes back and he begins to make confessions about who he knows the Lord is. He knows he's got to get back to firmer ground and stand on that. And so he takes him back, takes himself back to what he knows to be true about the Lord. Everything that Habakkuk had known growing up, growing up under King Josiah's reign where everything was good, Josiah had made things right in the land of Judah, had now literally crumbled apart. It was coming crashing down all around him and the very thought of what God was going to do had crushed his heart because he loved his people. A permanent change was coming in his life that was going to be hard and He would be going through difficult days and they were just around the corner. God had had said this. He's a contemporary Habakkuk is of Jeremiah. So they probably have talked and they know about what is coming as they are awaiting this. And he and and the other remnant have been told by God now, here's what you're going to do. We talked about it last week that there are certain principles and realities about the way the world is. It's full of violence. It's full of oppression. It's full of injustice. It's full of of uh, rampant immorality and, and idolatry and all kinds of things. And so how does a believer live in a world like that? Well, a believer lives in a world like that by Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous live by faith. Though the world crumbles around them, they continue to maintain their faith by knowing this, that God is sovereign. God is good. God's going to take care of things. And I am going to trust in who He is. And so that's where we were last week, is that we must live by faith. We must move from a place of fear to great faith. We must move from a place of sorrow and sobbing to great singing and great shouting that God is sovereign and He is in control and His glory is going to come and it will be accomplished in His plan. Now we've been reading, just started this week in Ruth But we've been reading in James, and I love what James writes in chapter 5. Listen to these words. This is James 5, verse 10. If you want to ask the question, why why study a book that was written 2,600 years ago to the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah? Well, one is, if you've been here, it's incredibly relevant to today's times. It's as if it could be written today to us. But we also know this, and I love that the New Testament gives great affirmation to the study of the Old Testament. James 5.10 says this, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. James 5.11, Behold, we consider those blessed 
who remain steadfast. And then he says, you've heard the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So we are studying this because we today, many, many years later, 2,600 years later, have great lessons to learn from what Habakkuk learned about what God, he and God were talking about and how God was communicating with them. Now I want to ask you to do something. I want you to go back to your left, and I want you to go to Psalm chapter 73 just for a moment. This is a psalm of Asaph. And I want us to read this before we get into the text um, and begin to walk through it today. Psalm chapter 73. This Asaph is wrestling with what Habakkuk is wrestling with. Psalm 73, verse 1. He makes a great affirmation statement. Truly God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, he says, I had an issue. My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And look up here just for a second. So here's what he's saying. He's like, he's given great affirmation. I know God, I know God honors those who have a heart that's pure for him and wants to walk in holiness. But I took my eyes off of that reality and I forgot about that truth. And I began to look around at my culture and I began to wonder, why do the wicked seem to have better lives than those that love God and love righteousness? And so he's going he's to share now his wrestling with this. So now look in verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For it seemed to him in verse 4 that they had no pangs, they had no issues, no struggles until death. And I don't know how this works, but their bodies were fat and sleek. They had no real struggles, he's saying. They just they seemed to have everything that needed and healthy and everything seemed to be okay with them. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. They don't seem to be stricken like the rest of mankind. They just don't seem to have trouble. They seem to have stable eyes. Verse 6, therefore, pride, because they don't have any issues, pride is their necklace and violence covers them as a garment. They just wear their pride around and and boast. And look at verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with silliness and follies, things that don't matter. They don't live for God. Verse 8, they scoff and they speak malice. Loftily, they, they threaten oppression. They use their power to oppress people. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. They speak ill will against God. And yet they seem to be so successful. Therefore, as people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And here's what was happening and taking place. Asap's saying, there's people now that are going, I, I love righteousness, but it seems like the wicked seem to be more prosperous. And so they're like, so the righteous are like, I kind of would like the life that the wicked are leading. And they kind of turn back to them and they're thinking, boy, if I had a life like that, who didn't have any issues, they don't have any trouble, and they can wear their pride as a necklace and there just doesn't seem to be any pangs until death. And he's wrestling with that. They mock God, and yet they seem to have these great lives. Look at 11, and they say, how can God know? God doesn't know what's going on. Is there, is there knowledge in the Most High? And they question God. 12, behold, these are the wicked. They seem to always be at ease. They increase 
and riches. And he's wrestling, look at 13, really wrestling with this. All in vain, in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Now look up here for a second. Note where he is. Really important. God, I've faithfully walked with you. And my bank account is not full. My crops aren't as good as the wicked who mock you. The rich who oppress people, they just seem to be getting richer, more successful. Things seem to be better for them. And I'm struggling. And so he he literally says this. God, I've done all of this to keep my heart pure. And it's been in vain. It's been to no blessing. It's been to no, no betterment to my life. The wicked seem to have better life than me. That's a tough place to be. God, I've washed my hands in innocence, and yet the wicked who don't give any consideration to you seem to have everything that they need. Look at 14. For all the day long I have been stricken and I've been rebuked. I'm not honored. They are honored, and I'm stricken and rebuked. 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He thought about saying something, reconsidered it, but he wanted to say it. 16, but when I thought how to understand this, why is this the case? It seemed to me a wearisome task. It was just overwhelming to think about it. Now look here. Let's be honest. Sometimes we felt that way. God, I've walked with you for decades. I've been faithful. I've been a a tither. I give more than the tithe. I've been faithful in my giving. I serve. I, I, God, I do this. And I look around and, and we try to operate our family to honor you. Our kids have wrestled with their faith. Some of our kids have turned away. And we, we say all kinds of, we look at our life and we just say, God, where's the blessing? Where's the blessing? And here's the reality that we must come to, and it's this. When we take our eyes off of the Lord and we begin to shift them to other Christians or to the wicked and the lost who do not know the Lord, we will every single time lay blame toward God. So what's needed? Well, we've got to get our eyes back on the Lord. Look at 17. So 16, he says, when I thought to understand why this is the case, it seemed a wearisome task. Why is this the case? Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. And he sees that that's not the case with the lost and the wicked. It's different. So look what what he says now. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin." How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant toward you. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. He reminds himself, he remembers what's true about him. You hold my right hand. 
You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. And so, God, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, they may fail. But this will not fail, that God is the strength of my heart, and He is my portion forever. And then perspective comes when he gets to a place of worship. 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. And look how he closes. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So this is where Habakkuk is. It's where Asaph is. And if you're there today wondering, where's the fruit, God? Where's the blessing, God? I I just want to remind you, God, we, we need the adjustment in our perspective of these things at times. To recognize that, no, God does take care of His people. He guides us with His right hand. He is for us. And and we have His presence and the knowledge of Him and the relationship with Him, which is the treasure of all treasures. Amen? It is. That's the treasure. We are not here. It's okay if we accumulate and God blesses financially. But we are not here to accumulate things on this planet. We are not. We are here to know God and to communicate the glorious message of the gospel. That is why we are here, to know Him and to walk in that reality. And if we ever shift our eyes off of that, then we turn inward or we turn outward and we put blame toward God, and that's not the case. And so now what I want to do is I want to share with us from Habakkuk 2 now that God gives five woes, really important things for us to to remember, just like Asaph had to come to this understanding, God now shares with Habakkuk, Habakkuk, listen, I'm going to take care of my people. I'm going to take care of the remnant. You are going to walk through tough days, but I want you to know this, Habakkuk, I am going to bring woes on those who reject me and do not follow me and worship me. So he shares... God's still answering Habakkuk here. Here's the first one. We'll have these on the screen. God gives in chapter 2 here five really significant woes. Anytime a culture rejects the Word of God, rejects who God is, the nature of God, these woes are going to come upon that culture. You will see as we begin to walk through these that they are happening in this country right now. These woes that God speaks here are being manifest in some ways, bigger, smaller ways right now in the country. Here's the first woe. The first woe is in verses 6 and 8, and it's woe to those with selfish ambition. So when the Chaldean people came through, God describes them, shall not all these take up their taunt against him? Back in verse 5 of Habakkuk 2, He talks about that they would sweep through and they would gather up the nations. Now he's saying these nations that they've gathered up are going to respond back to the Babylonian people and they will overtake them. So here's what he says. Shall shall not all these that have been scooped up, these nations, take up their taunt against him, the Chaldeans, with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, woe to him who eats up what is not his own. 
They would come and they would take what's not their own. They would capture the nations. They would steal their goods, steal their people, steal their daughters and their children. For how long? He loads himself up with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? And then you, Chaldeans, will be spoiled for the people you've captured because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and the violence of the earth to the cities and all who dwell in them. The point there is just simply this, is that nations today, and this has been the case, and the principle, though it's being spoken to the Chaldean people, this is a biblical principle. God is going to bring judgment upon the nations who have exercised injustice to people. He will bring that about. He will make everything eventually totally right. And it will be clear what they have done and how he has brought about this reality into their lives. So woe to those with selfish ambition. Y'all remember Philippians 2? Do nothing out of what? Selfish ambition. And we have nations today that are that way. Our nation has become that way. Have you looked around lately? What drives us? Selfish ambition. Everybody out for their own thing, their own place, their own truth. This drives our country today. Selfish ambition. And so in a culture like that, where government, local government, family structures, whatever the case may be, where selfish ambition drives something, you will find that there is a reap what you sow. There's a a day that's going to come, a day of reckoning that's going to come, and that's what God says there, that there will be judgment that will come for those who operate their lives in, in, in everything in and around them by selfish ambition. Here's a second principle. It's, it's a woe to those in verse 9 through 11 for those who just go after things and they have a shameful greed with unjust gain. Look at 9 through 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house and set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house, God says, by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited, that's really strong language, your life. For the stone that you've captured and made your house of up there thinking, nobody's going to destroy us, nobody's going to knock us down. Your stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork of your house will respond. This is the idea. So they would march through, they would gather people, and and the Chaldeans had this idea of nobody's going to be able to knock us down. We've got the strongest military. Um, We've got the wisest commanders. We've got this. We've got the money. We've captured this. We are so powerful that we built a house. We built a nation. We built a a philosophy. We built a business. We built this. And we built it in such a way where we have unjustly gained things. But it doesn't matter. Nobody can topple us. And this has always been the case. And we've talked about it. And I want to remind us this morning. Every great nation in the history of the West, who's been in power, and even those in the Middle East, when you go back to Old Testament days, and you look at Israel, every nation that is once great, 
every single time is not captured, first of all, by another powerful army. They are captured by another powerful army because they have first crumbled from within that nation. And they are weak. You look at our country today, and we are crumbling, literally crumbling before our eyes. There's a psalm that says, Shall I fly away up into the mountain and flee because the foundations of the nation have crumbled? So all around us, it's there, and that that psalm talks about, No, I, I can't do that. Again, the call there is that we would continue to have faith. And we have systems in the world and government and all kinds of things where those who are rich and those who are in power, they oppress those who have not. And it's wrong. James also talks about that in James 5, 1 through verse 6 when he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are going to come upon you. And God is trying to tell Habakkuk, Habakkuk, I'm answering your question. Here's how you work. Here's how you live in a world that's crumbling. You maintain your faith in me. The righteous will live by faith. The just will live by faith. And so so you need to know this. Those who march in and those who operate this way, they are going to get their due. Yes, they have captured nations. Yes, they have oppressed people. But I am going to make things right. When you go to the book of Revelation, God speaks to those who are in power in the last days. And he's, He says, and, and, and it, the, the picture that's there is they recognize God's bringing judgment. So listen to how the rich and the powerful who have amassed wealth by oppressing the poor, listen to how they respond. This is Revelation six fifteen through 17 Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals of the armies and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free, they hid themselves in caves and they the rocks in the mountains saying this, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for great is the day of their wrath has come. And who can stand when God moves in His wrath? So he's trying to remind Habakkuk, and he wants to remind you and I today, that though we look around and it wonders, God, are you sovereignly in control of things? Because things are crumbling worldwide, and things are crumbling where we live. And so God is saying, yes, I am. I'm going to deal with those who oppress I'm going to deal with those who say one thing and do another. I'm going to deal with them. God will bring justice on them. Here's the third woe. It's in verse 12 and 13. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire? And nations weary themselves for nothing. I'm going to stop here just for a minute because I think there's some important principles that are here. Verse 12 and 13, again, specifically originally written to the Chaldean people, but have implications because of God's law is truth, truth is truth. And when these things happen, 
there are consequences. This is a judgment verse. Listen to this. This is a judgment verse on cities that practice and build themselves and build their reputation and build their laws and build how they spend their tax dollars on the shedding of blood. We've talked about this in these days and and I want to repeat it again here because I think it's really important here. If you if some of you may think, "Oh, you talk about culture too much." I don't talk about culture unless the text usually gives it because I've got sermons where I don't do it, but the text today demands that we talk about this. I want you to think about the major cities in our country that we see on the news every day almost. They have built themselves on bloodshed through abortion, through the genital mutilation of children, through sex change, stuff that's going on and this affirmation of this, this senseless violence that permeates many of our cities. What we are seeing in our day is the judgment of God upon the cities in our nation today. Because they have been built on the philosophy of the shedding of blood and innocence. Less than two weeks ago, California passed a law that if a kid or a teenager, I don't want you to hear this, if a kid or a teenager can get to California, California will pay for their sex change operation without their parents' consent. That is a law that was passed less than two weeks ago. They have also communicated this. If you're 13 and you can get to California, we will pay for your abortion. There are businesses in our country who have said, we will pay to get you to California for your abortion. And God here is speaking clearly about the Chaldean people but also to Judah as well and to every nation. We are not to build our cities on the bloodshed of the innocent and on the bloodshed of anyone. So this verse, again, is, a, is another reason why abortion is wrong. Abortion tears apart tiny, tiny people who have hearts and brains and eyes, and fingers, and arms. And we literally have cities in this nation who make a big deal of that they are big-time abortion providers. Come to our city and get yours. So what do we do? Again, I just want to remind us in the midst of this, we go back to Habakkuk 2.4. How do you live in a world like that? How do you live when the judgment of God is falling? The righteous live by faith, knowing that God's going to make things right and God's going to correct things. Woe to those who build cities on bloodshed. The fourth one is woe to those who shamefully exploit others with debauchery. Now read with me, please, 15 through 17. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. 
In other words, get them drunk with alcohol or nowadays more stuff. You pour out your wrath and you make them drunk. Listen to this. In order to gaze at their nakedness, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence on the earth to cities and all who dwell on them. This is what the Chaldeans did. It's what the Persians did who took over from the Chaldeans. They practiced just rampant drinking and drunkenness. Read the book of Esther in the beginning. Remember? For almost a year, they just had a party. And then the king's having a party. He's like, everybody's drunk. All the men are drunk. They, they made a law during that time that during a certain period of time, there was no compulsion. Nobody needed to say no to anything. Drink as much as you want. Do whatever you want to do. And then the king one day with his drunk buddies decided, I'm going to bring my beautiful wife, Queen Vashti, in, and I want to show her off in front of all the people. And y'all remember what she said? She said, no, I'm not coming into that setting. I am not going to do that. It caused a great crisis in the kingdom. But there you see it. It was what was practiced. And you see it all around here today. And I want to make, I want to make one point before we do the last woe. And then I want to get into some more positive things. There's hope. There is hope. Always hope with God. I am so deeply troubled over this one. It's the, it's the most recent one I'm deeply troubled over. There's something called pedophilia. It's adults having sex with children or desiring sex with children. And how utterly shocking it is in our nation that we have changed the name pedophilia and it's becoming more. And there's an acronym they've called MAP. Minor Attracted Persons. And this acronym or this word MAP, minor attracted persons, is just a softer version of the word pedophilia, and it is becoming more mainstream in our country today for people to say that it's okay for adults to desire sex with children. That is in our country today. That is conversation that is increasing over and over, and we as God's people, we've got to be bothered by that. We've got, we've, got to be, we've got to be moved by that, that this is, the, this is evidence of the crumbling, that this is becoming mainstream language to soften the reality of that. I just would remind those who are doing this what Jesus himself said in Matthew 18. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. We live in a time where pornography is just in our hands with our phones. And if you have children and you've given them a smartphone, I'm not saying you've done bad or not, I'm just saying this, you need to be aware that pornography is just a couple of clicks away for girls and boys. And you ought to be active 
And they, your kid was going to say, you don't have a right to look at my phone. Yeah, you do have a right to look at your kid's phone. Kids, your parent has a right to look at your phone. You want to go destroy your life when you're older, you can go do that. But I'm just telling you right now, if you live in your parents' house, you have a responsibility to submit to your parents, and God will bless you if you are still underneath the authority of your parents. Last woe is this. Woe to those who embrace and live for idols. Verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, It's a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, wooden thing! Or to a silent stone, Arise, silent stone! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath in it at all. Idolatry is an abandoning of the worship of God for the worship of created things. And if I had time, I would go through all of these. I think they're on the outline, but Aaron, we're not going to do that because I want to go next. And I want to talk about where does our hope lie? What do we do now? With this being the case, that we are seeing some of the things that God said about the Chaldean people, we are seeing some of those things in our land today. Where does our hope, where do we need to fix our eyes? Well, we go to, we go to Habakkuk 2.4b. The righteous live by faith. We must continue to live by faith, trusting that God's word is true. And so we're going to walk in it. We're going to stand on it. It's going to be, it's going to be our foundation, that truth. We are going to be that kind of people. We will live by faith when things crumble. We will also do this. We will remember that God's ultimate aim for the earth will be accomplished. You know what His ultimate aim for the earth is? It's what He began with. When God, in Genesis 1 and 2, God created the world. Sin had not entered yet. It was beautiful. God would would fellowship with Adam and Eve. They would fellowship with Him. Um, there There was peace. There was just incredible, incredible beautiful things that were taking place in Genesis 1 and 2. God's glory, watch this, as it does in Genesis 1, 1 and 2. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God's presence filled the earth. God was there. His presence was there. And now the fall came and here we are and everything has been marred and everything has been, has, has been mocked of God and destroyed and marred about who God is. But I want to tell you some great news today. The sovereign king of the universe, his name is Jesus Christ. He is coming back again. And you know what he's going to do when he comes back again? He's going to do what Habakkuk 2.14 says. That when Jesus comes and he comes to the earth, he's going to set up his kingdom for a thousand years. And his glory literally is going to cover the earth. It will be higher than Mount Everest. It will obviously be deeper in the deepest part of the sea. His glory will cover the whole earth. Three great blessings points to this. It means this, that when his, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, the depth of the knowledge of the glory when Christ returns, it will permeate the entire earth. 
His glory and His judgments are deep and they are far higher than Mount Everest. Think about this for a moment. You can literally go to places today on the planet after 2,000 years after the cross and the resurrection of Jesus and there are still people here on the earth. They still estimate it's just under 6,000 people groups right now in 2022 that have never heard the name of Jesus. Never heard the name of Jesus. You know what's going to happen in the millennial kingdom? There is not a place you will be able to go in the millennial kingdom where the name of Jesus will not be known. His glory, His name, His greatness is literally going to cover the entire earth. So there's not now there's a place you can go and nobody's heard. And then when He returns and He sets up His kingdom and He brings His righteousness, His glory will literally fill the entire earth. He is going to accomplish this. You see, when man builds without God, nothing will last. But when God comes and He builds and He establishes His kingdom, His glory will cover the entire earth. Secondly, the great abundance of what will be known of Jesus. And so not only the depth of the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the entire earth, but there will be a great abundance of people who know who Jesus is. It will not be possible to not touch every a surface of the earth, every surface of the earth, there will be somebody who knows about Jesus. His glory will be known. The third thing that's great blessing is, is that there will be a permanence and a lasting nature of the knowledge of His glory that will last for all eternity. The waters won't recede when He comes back. The knowledge of who He is will not recede. It will be known and it will remain. And I'll say this, that as this world grows darker, the promised return of the sun grows brighter. So as the world grows darker, the promised return of the sun grows brighter. I think I have this verse up on the screen. Do we have Isaiah 46 eight? Maybe. I've probably messed up. I've butchered my outline. Sorry, Aaron. You're probably doing the best you can to follow me. I don't know if we have that. Listen to this. This is the Lord speaking. Isaiah 46, 8 and following. Remember this, people, and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Here's what I do. I declare the end from the beginning From the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel will stand, and I will accomplish all for my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, I'll even do something like that. The man of my counsel from a far country. Listen to what God says. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will do it. Our great confidence today, hear me, that as things crumble and and we soften sinful, wicked words to make it more compatible to our culture that is dominated by feelings and not truth, we have the hope today that Jesus is returning and He will set up His kingdom and He will bring justice And he will make things right. 
So what do we do now? How do we respond now? We'll look at verse 20. But the Lord is in his temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Well, you see this today in our culture. Our culture has put God on trial. And I just want to say this morning, God's not ever on trial. We don't try God. We don't do that. Is he real? Does he exist? Is he good? God is not ever on trial. The sinful world is on trial before his holiness. That's the truth. So how do we respond? Well, I think this is a message, verse 20, to Habakkuk, who's been complaining to God about God's actions. And it's also a message to the whole world. And it's this. Don't miss this. This is the culminating thing of the talk today. Our God right now, our God yesterday, our God tomorrow, our God for all of eternity. But let's just talk about now, though. He is seated on his throne in his temple. And so what, how does the earth respond to that? That he's sovereign, that he's king, he's ruler, he's holy, he's righteous. We ought to shut our mouths and worship him. Again, note, this is God speaking. And if he would have made it more personal, he would have said, I am in my temple, you on the earth, you be quiet. Because this earth is mine. You are mine. So the Lord's word to the earth is, you be silent before me. Let me give you a couple of verses here. Isaiah 40, 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Isaiah 40, 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and he makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. The Nebuchadnezzars, the Hitlers, the Putins, the whoever you want to name, they will continue to rise up until Jesus comes and he will deal with every one of them. And so we remember the king of kings and the Lord of what? He's coming back. So our confidence rests there. And so how do we respond to this reality? We know that he is on his throne. And so we respond by being quiet. I just have a few minutes left. By the way, Carol, hello, Carol. Carol Metcalf texted me last Sunday afternoon because I cut my sermon short last week. And she gave me permission that I could go as long as I wanted to finish. (laughs) She told me I could do that. She said, I'll stay. I guess all the pagans might leave out of the room. But, but I'll talk to Carol. A few minutes left. I want to I give a practical application of what this looks like to be silent before God. By the way, 
This is a forgotten discipline of the church. We live in such a noisy time. We need to practice being quiet. That means those of you who can't stop talking, you need to stop talking sometimes, even to God. And just listen. Get somewhere in your backyard. Come up here during the week and sit in here. Come up and sit on our property. Get somewhere where there's solitude and be silent. And remember that he uses the earth as his footstool. That's how big he is. So the Lord is in his temple. Let the earth keep silence before him. Just before Habakkuk came on the scene, there was a prophet by the name of Isaiah. He was living under the reign of a guy named King Uzziah. And Uzziah was an interesting man. He was the 10th king of Judah. Pretty good king. He reigned 52 years, and it was pretty good until the very end of his life. At the end of his life, he was full of pride. And so one day, he walked into the temple, Second Chronicles uh, 26 tells us about this. He went into the temple that he was not supposed to go in because only the priest could go into the temple. And he picked up the bowl of incense where they would burn the incense and they would put the coal in there to burn this. And he picked it up himself. Eighty priests confronted Uzziah. He said, you can't do this. This is our role. You're a king. You can't do this. And so they confronted him. He got angry at them and was not going to allow them to do it. He's probably using language like, I'm the king, you submit. I'm the king. I'm I'm connected to the line of David. Well, right there in the temple on his forehead, his forehead completely breaks out in full-blown leprosy. They grab him and they take him out. And for the remainder of his days, he didn't live in the king's palace. He had to live in another house. For his leprosy remained. That'll cause a crisis in a country when you've got a really good king who decides that he's going to step beyond what God has given him the power to do. He was not to go into the temple, but he didn't care. He was the king. He could do whatever he wanted to do. He wore his pride like a necklace. And so they confronted him. And for the remainder of his days, he remained king, but he had to live separate from all the people. The leprosy, by the way, never left his forehead. So anytime somebody would talk to him, you would see the mark of his rebellion against God. Well, Isaiah is living at that time, and Uzziah finally dies. And this great passage in Isaiah 6 happens, and it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. And I want you to hear these words. For they are magnificent and they are needed today and they teach us about what this looks like. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, these incredible angels. They had six wings. Two, they covered their face. Two, they covered their feet. And with two of them, they flew. And they kept calling back to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
Listen to this word, this theme that, uh, that God has just told Habakkuk. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I'm going to stop there just for a second and share a couple things. I think it's just really, really important for us to see. He sees, he uses this word, I saw Adonai. That's a word that means sovereign. I've, I've seen the, the sovereign Lord. It's a, it's a title that indicates that God has a sovereign reign, that He's the ruler of the universe, that He has absolute lordship. Isaiah's house, Uzziah's house has fallen apart. He's dead now. It has been marked by his rebellion against God and his leprosy. But in the midst of the chaos of that day, of the losing of the leader, God gives him a vision and reminds him, Isaiah, I'm still on my throne. It's not about the kingdoms of men. It's about my kingdom, and it's about that I am on the throne. And he sees him there seated in this absolute throne of power, and he is high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And I know I've shared this before, but there are new people. In the eastern part of the world, here's what would happen. If a king was in a battle, kings always had robes. If a king was in a battle and he captured an army, they would practice this. They would find the king that they had just captured. They would get his robe and they would cut off a piece of the king's robe that had just been captured. And they would sew it onto the robe of the king that had just won the victory. So when Isaiah sees the glory of Jesus, his train filled the temple. There was not a space in the temple that did not scream, our God is victorious. Nobody defeats him. He's the king above all. He is surrounded by holy angels. Two, they cover their face. The glory of God was even too much for them. They would cover their face. They would cover their feet, indicating this. They were not going to go their own way. They would go God's way. And with two, they flew that they would be in ministry. They would be used by God to do things. And what they were, what they were doing, did you notice what they were doing? They were flying around, crying out, Our God is holy. Our God is holy. And His glory fills the earth. The verbs here indicate that this was a continual thing. They're doing it right now. They're doing that right now. Just as they did in the year that King Uzziah died, these seraphim right now—that's the—that's the, the tense of the verb there. They are doing it right now as we're here. They are crying out, "Holy, holy, holy!" And I just have a question for us this morning: Are we going to be the kind of people that join them to exalt our sovereign, holy King? Note that Isaiah doesn't say anything until it's the right time. And note, he doesn't say, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait a minute, God, um, um, can I take a picture of this? Um, can I write some of this down? He's just overwhelmed with the sounds. The thresholds of the temple of God in heaven are shaking. He's listening to the worship. He sees the train of the robe. There's smoke that's filling, filling the place. And he is overcome. Listen. He's overcome by his guilt. 
that he is not like God, that God is God and he is man. And Isaiah needs cleansing. And then the Trinity, it's there. The Trinity are talking to one another. And if you disagree with me, then you're wrong. They say, who will go for us? Us. Plural. And Isaiah finally speaks and says, okay, God, me. I'm going. I want to go. And so he's commissioned and says yes to go. Here's the point. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not a prophet. I'm just Doak Taylor living in Collin County in the year 2022. I'm just a guy who loves the Lord. And I love God's word. And I believe every sentence in this book. I believe that everything that God says is going to come true. And I want to remind you and I this morning of this. Our confidence in a crumbling culture is that Jesus Christ is coming again. And that he is the sovereign ruler. And he can be trusted. And that's where our confidence rests. And he will come again and his glory will fill the earth. It will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so our response is to stand before the one that the angels, from the beginning, I'm guessing, have not stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of its glory. So the question is, is that our response? Are we going to be the kind of people who join them to acknowledge that, that our great confidence is our God is glorious, and so therefore at times I need to quit charging Him with doing wrong or not being concerned about me. I just need to be silent before Him. And I need to live by faith. Habakkuk 2, 4b. The just live by faith. Let's pray.